The book of Job, we're going to jump back into that book this morning. So turn to the book of Job in your Bibles. Job is a book, like we said last week, it's a book like none other. It's an amazing story. And the story referenced in the book of Job is probably one of the oldest in the Bible, though like we talked last week, we don't know exactly when it was written. But we can kind of figure out, and we'll have some clues even this morning running through the first chapter of Job, about what era this actually took place in. Secondly, it's a, it's a book filled with not only a story, but Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature. It's also filled with the wisdom of some folks who think they've got a handle on things, and we're going to find out whether they do or not as we work through the book. It provides us with a unique look behind the scenes of a very earthly story. In fact, it's one of the few books that does that. We very rarely know what's happening in heaven as a result or what's happening on earth as a result of what's already happened there. But the book of Job gives us a unique look into God and what he's doing and why he's doing it. But the interesting thing about the book of Job is it gives us a unique look, but it never gives that look to Job. And so we know things as we read this book that the main character, as far as we know, never knew. And then as we go through this book, it's a very real struggle. This is not just a story. When we start this book out and it says there was a man in the land of Uz, we need to realize there was a real man who lived and breathed and had his living going on and his family happening around him in the land of Uz. It's a very real story. It's not once upon a time and fill in the blanks on a fairy story, a fairy tale. This is a very real story, a very real story charged with very intense emotions Again, it's, it's some of you, I hope some of you tried to read through the book this week, or at least part of the book this week before you got bogged down between chapters 3 and chapters 37. But you get to chapters 3 and 37, and again, it's a unique book because you have several well-meaning, long-winded friends who think they get it. And all of what they say is not scripturally incorrect, but it may not fit Job's situation quite the way they believe it does. And they're going to teach us something. They're going to teach us a little bit about being too arrogant in our own minds and being able to figure out what's going on in somebody else's life. You ever look at somebody and you say, I know why he did that. I know why she did that. No, you don't. Because Job's friends thought they knew. And Job's friends had a lot of evidence to back up what they thought they knew. But Job's friends didn't get to see what we get to see in chapter 1. So as we're looking at that, we need to realize that this often happens in life. It's filled with real-world questions with which we must grapple, with which Job was grappling, trying to reconcile the circumstances in life with his idea of who God is and how God should work. And again, this is another one of those books that I don't know how you teach the health and prosperity gospel and then you read the book of Job. Because that's what Job's friends thought ought to be happening. This is how it works. If you've got enough faith, if you're walking with God, then you're healthy and you're wealthy and you're wise. And they weren't any of those things. And Job, when we read, again, I think it's part of why God gives us this look into heaven. Because if we look at Job without the look into heaven, don't we think the same thing? Wouldn't you assume, Job, you must have done something wrong? Because this, this, this isn't just calamity. You've been devastated. And you've been devastated at the hand of God. So what did you do? And we think like that. And sometimes we need to think like that. There's some truth in that sometimes. But what does it really have to do with the book of Job and how does it work? And then hang in there if you're struggling through the book of Job. Get to the end of the book. This book is very unique because God speaks directly to Job at the end of that book. 
You know how many characters in Scripture God speaks directly with? I didn't add them all up, but it's very few. It's only a handful of people that God speaks directly with as he does to Job. And the interesting thing about it is Job doesn't get out of that conversation what he's looking for. And it's another lesson to us. Now, it won't be a lesson until the end of the book, but it's a lesson to us because you ever go into God in prayer expecting the answer that you wanted God to give you and he doesn't give you the answer you were expecting? That's reality. That's reality for Job. And so all these things are taking place in this amazing book. So let's turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to do a little bit of an interesting walk through the book. I'm going to do our scripture reading as we go throughout the lesson today. As we take these different sections, there's at least four distinct sections in this first chapter. And we're going to read through them as we get to them. But the question is, what happens to you when your faith is tested? Job's faith is going to be tested. We know the story. It's not like you don't know what's coming, but we need to think about the whys and the hows and the reactions as a part of all that's going on here. So as we look at the background for Job, we're going to begin by reading Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Follow along with me as I read. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we get some background on Job. The interesting thing about that is, you know, Job doesn't occur hardly any place else in the scripture other than in this verse, other than in this book. There's only two other places we find him. We find him in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 14, he's mentioned along with Noah and Daniel. That's pretty good company. As upright men and heroes. And then he's mentioned in James chapter 5, where James says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job's steadfastness in all that he did. And so as we look at this man from the perspective of Scripture, even outside of the book of Job, we know very little about him, but we know one thing. God is pleased with Job's steadfastness in the midst of trials. Can you say that of us? Trials more than anything else are the things that will shatter our faith if we're not careful. Because just like Job's friends, sometimes we've got the wrong idea of what it means to walk with God. And as we go through a trial, and your trial may be very real, we're going to see some very deep trials. And if we're not careful, we miss the depths of the trials because we're reading so quickly through Job chapter 1. But Job is going to go through some deep trials that are going to cause most people to look and say, is God really there? God would not allow this if God were there. God would not do this to me if he were really there. And part of the problem is the book of Job is an opportunity for us to take a look and realize that no matter who we are, we are not the center of the universe. Did you see that description of Job? You can miss it if you're not careful in the midst of saying how upright and godly he is. It says he's the greatest man in the East. When you think of all of the Arabic sheiks, in his day, he was the greatest, the wealthiest, the wisest. God looked and said, this man's number one. 
And in the midst of that, he's suddenly going to go through trials that to Job aren't going to make any sense. So here we have this man, Job, his home. He lives in the land of us. And again, Job's going to teach us a few things about concentrating on what's important and what's not. You could spend a lot of time studying to find out where is us. And the bottom line is, we're really not sure. We think it's somewhere near the northeastern section of Saudi Arabia, probably somewhere near Edom, Lower Jordan, somewhere in that area. But at the end of the day, I could give you all the reasons why and then tell you it doesn't matter. The location is not important. It's kind of given to us here just to add the color of this is a real man who lives in a real place, who's got a real address, so to speak, in us. And so here's Job, and he's living there. And he's living in us, and his is his reputation. And this is what we're supposed to be paying attention to. You look at it, and it says here, Job, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Four descriptors for Job that are just amazing, because can God say that of you? Now, this is the author saying this of Job, but hold on, because God's going to say the exact same thing in just a few verses. And so we look at Job, and we find out he's blameless. Was Job sinless? I've heard it preached. You know, Job is a saint because it said in all this he sinned not. But Job was not a sinless guy. That's not what that blameless means. What that blameless idea is, there's an absence of any observable sinful acts in his life. Job is trying to live for God and do what he ought to before God. The idea of that blameless is the idea that Job's going to share with us in chapter 31. If you make it all the way to chapter 31, Job's going to give a defense of himself and say, this is what it means to be who I am. I am honest and I'm faithful to my wife and I have a just treatment for all my servants and I'm generous to the poor and I avoid any kind of idolatry. I fear God and God alone. And God looked at that and said, this man's blameless. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Not only blameless, but he's upright. And I looked at that. Oh, I wonder what the different nuances of upright from blameless. It's kind of a synonym. They're basically saying, this guy is Walking right. He's doing the right stuff, whether you want to call it blameless or doing right, being upright. The idea is all the same, and they're going to Job's motives in life. Why does Job do what he does? God's about to go to his motives in life and challenge the one person Job probably going to wish by the end of the story hadn't been challenged. But God looks and says, here's a man who's blameless, who's upright, whose motives are right. And then just to finish it off, he says he fears God and turns away from evil. Job had a devout faith. That fear is a reverence and awe of God. It's a reverence for who he was. And again, we're going to look at this, but Job is probably from the patriarchal period. Where did Job get his reverence of God from? That had to be from oral tradition passed down. It's very likely that Job didn't even have the Torah at that point, the first five books of this Bible, let alone the rest of it. So who God is and how God works and the relationship we're supposed to have to him had been passed down. I thought, well, that's probably pretty apropos for Mother's Day. I don't know where you got your start in walking with the Lord, but mine came from my mom. My mom got saved. I didn't come from a family that had generations of Christians in it. In fact, it was God working in my mom's heart, and sometime I'll share that with you, but then I'll really go over, so I'm not going to do that today. But God worked in my mom's heart, and my mom made sure that the two boys she had, whether they were rascals or not, they were going to be in church every time she could get them there, even when their dad didn't care if they ever got there. 
And my dad would want to take me hunting. Now put yourself in the shoes of a 12 to 14 year old boy. You can go hunting today or you can go to church. And I loved my dad, but my mom scared me. I went to church. And my mom made sure I was there because she loved me. And she wanted me to have this kind of a foundation. And somewhere in Job's life along the line, somebody did that for Job. Because he knows God, he fears God. Not only does he fear God, but it says he turns away from evil. And the word, the Hebrew word for turned away, means to recoil, to go out of one's way to avoid it. Job didn't flirt with the things that tempted him to do wrong. He stayed away from those. He He would flee youthful lust. He would flee the things that could destroy his life. So all of these things going on here with Job, he's a pretty special guy. And not only do we have his reputation, but look at, we're going to come back to verse 2 in a minute, but look at verse 3 in his wealth. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Now, I'll be honest to you, as a kid who grew up in the suburbs, this didn't mean a lot to me until I had to start studying. What, well, what's the big deal about all this? And it's a big deal. 7,000 sheep were a lot of sheep, especially in the day of Job. In fact, so much so that, again, God's going to look and say he's the richest man in all the East. He's got 7,000 sheep, and he's got 500 female donkeys. And again, from everything I could read, they said the female donkeys were more valuable than the male donkeys because they had more donkeys. So you kept multiplying your donkeys. And so the donkeys were a sign of his wealth. The sheep were a sign of his wealth. And then 500 yoke of oxen. Now why put it that way? He's talking about 500 pairs, so he's got 1,000 oxen. Why does the scripture put it that way? They think most commentators looking at that, Job had extensive lands that he owned. And it took 500 pair of oxen to plow the land that Job had. So you think about this man and all of his wealth, and then... On top of that, he had very many servants. This guy's well-to-do. How many well-to-do guys do you know that roll up their sleeves and do the hard work? He's got people doing it for him. Now, we read later that he treats these people very well. But here is this man who's got this incredible wealth. In fact, so much so that at the end of verse 3, it says, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Of all the folks in his region, of all the folks in their vast wealth, it says Job is... The greatest. I thought about that for a minute. As I was studying this and going through, have you ever, and maybe it's just me, but have you ever thought and contemplated what would it be like to be this Bible character or that Bible character? What would it have been like to be David facing Goliath? What would it have been like to be Noah the day you got in the ark and God shut the door and vindicated everything you'd done for 120 years? What would it have been like to be Abraham, the one who was the father of the people of God? And over and over, you know, I can't remember a day when I said, oh, I wish I was Job. How many of you have wished you were Job? You know, if I've got to be Job, make it verses 1 through 5 and then let me out. Because Job is going to go through some amazing things as we see this as God works in his life. But not only this, you've got a guy who's got integrity. You've got a guy who's very wealthy, but you've got something else that's very unusual with a guy and a man of that stature. Often when you are that wealthy, you neglect your family. That's how some folks get there. They always, you always hear people, as they reminisce and think back and say, you know what, I'd wish I'd spent more time with my family than making a living like I did. And Job, in the midst of this, he says, he has seven sons and three daughters. 
So Job has 10 children. And you look at this family, and it tells us more about them in verse 4. It says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite the three sisters and eat and drink with them. So again, we don't get a lot of details on Job's family, but it sounds like it's got a pretty good situation going. They're getting together all the time. You know, they're doing what needs to be done. They're enjoying one another's company. And then it says in verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course... After his family got together, it doesn't tell us how long they feasted together. And again, in this Middle Eastern culture, sometimes these feasts last for days. And so here they are having these feasts together and enjoying time together. It says, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, Job would send and consecrate them. What exactly does that mean? A lot of commentators say, it means this. Well, guess what? Job doesn't tell us exactly what it means. But in some way, whether it was special prayer or special cleansing, getting ready for this sacrifice that Job was going to offer up, he was taking care of his kids spiritually. Not only that, but it says, then he rose up early in the morning and he offered burnt sacrifices for them. Again, it shows us the time period that was there. It, were the, it was the patriarchs in the patriarchal era that offered sacrifice. There was not a whole system, mosaic system yet. It was before that system took place. And so here he is, Job is getting up and he's offering sacrifices. Now, does Job have a despicable family? Guy's got to get up early in the morning consecrate these kids who have been feasting and having a great time together, and now he's got to offer sacrifices for them. What does that tell us? It tells us the heart of a father for his kids. It doesn't tell you anything about what they were doing. It doesn't say that they did anything wrong. In fact, Job doesn't even have anything. What does it say here? It says, Job says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God where? In their hearts. And that teaches us something about Job as well. Here's this man who's got great integrity, who's wealthy and respected, who loves his family. But what's his concern for his family? That they're growing spiritually in their heart, not what they're doing actively. Now, he's not not concerned with their actions, but Job's looking and he's just not saying, wow, I hope my kids go to church. Job's going much deeper than that. Job's going to say, I hope my kids have the right relationship with God in their hearts. Their heart's what I'm worried about. And so he's offering sacrifice in the event that maybe one of them cursed God in their hearts and they need forgiveness. So Job loves his family. He's working on all these things. He displays his spiritual value and even his discernment there and the fact that he did that. And not only does it tell us that he does that, but look at the end of verse 5. Thus Job did once in a while when it was convenient. So thus Job did continually. Job was continually worried about the spiritual lives of his kids because he knew how important it was to him. Think about that for a moment. What's important to you? Are you more worried about the material lives of your kids than the spiritual lives of your kids? Sometimes we are. Are you more worried about where they're going and what they're doing than what's happening in their hearts? And all those are important things. But as Job looked, Job said, you know what? I am continually concerned that my kids have a heart for God. And I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure they see that. You know why it works so well with Job? Because it was true of Job. 
If it's not true of you, you'll never lead your kids to do that. They can see what's important to you. They can see what you put time into. They can see what you love. They can see what you are willing to give up and not willing to give up. They can see what the priorities are in our lives. And as Job's family, whether they took to it quite like Job or not, Job said, my family's going to be spiritual if I can help it because that's my number one priority. He may have been rich. He may have had prestige and power. But in the midst of all that, Job's number one priority was, what's my relationship like with God? We need to learn from Job. Because Job's about to teach us how far that'll take us through and carry us through. Because all, after all this background, we get a unique look behind the scenes. Let's look at verses 6 through 12. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Behind the scenes. You know, until verse 5, I'm thinking, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to be Job. I could be the number one guy in the whole Middle East. I could be rich. I could have a family that's not dysfunctional. They're getting together. They're loving one another. They're being what they ought to be. But you get to verse 6, and now we get a very interesting scene. Now, I'm not sure I agree with this, but one commentator said this. It's the only scene in the book that defies an easy interpretation. There's a lot of stuff in this picture that we get in verses 6 through 12 to sidetrack us if we're not careful from the main point of what's going on here. So we've got to stay focused to what's happening here. You see, there are more questions than answers when you really think about it. Think about what just happened. Ask yourself, who is this Satan who's just shown up? Now, we've got the rest of the Bible to figure that out. But when you're reading Job for the first time, and if it's the first book, there's no explanation of who he is. Not really. And then, where did he come from? Is this really the devil found elsewhere in the Bible? Why does the definite article precede his name? Every time you see Satan in chapter 1 and 2, it says the Satan. Because his name means the accuser or the adversary. And so it's very specific on who he is. Why is it like that? How can he have such an easy and direct access to the Lord? He's there. He's there with the sons of God. By the way, who are they? There's a lot of questions in this passage. And when does Satan fall from heaven? Because it's obviously he's fallen by now. Why doesn't Job tell us all this? Why does the Lord stoop to answer Satan in the first place? And it's really interesting when you read this. Again, sometimes we read this without any feeling, any inflection, and forget what's going on, but real life's happening here. And we're going to look at what Satan said and how he said it. And then, can Satan still access and challenge God like this concerning any one of us? And I've heard it preached like that because he's the accuser of the brethren. And so we jump to all kinds of conclusions from this passage because this passage doesn't say that. Let's look at what the passage says. And I'm going to tell you right now, 
And this is one thing I did agree with that same commentator who said this. The only satisfactory explanation is that we are given only what we need to know and not what we want to know. Does that ever bother you in Scripture? You ever want to know something that's not there? And I think part of the reason for that intrigue is the fact that God's underlining, you know what, this is what you need to know. This is what you need to focus on. And the rest of that really doesn't matter in the course of this situation. So what do we see here behind the scenes, the occasion? Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. There was a day when the sons of God did what? They came to present themselves before the Lord. Who set that meeting up? God did. Because they're coming to present themselves before him. God's not sitting there and saying, oh, there's somebody at my heavenly door. Well, look at that. It's the sons of God. It's not. It's God said, y'all are coming. Now, the sons of God, again, who are they? They're plural. There's a bunch of them. They're inferior to God because they're coming to give an account to him. It's probably angelic beings, the way it's used elsewhere in Scripture. But again, there's only a couple of references, and those are kind of vague. But it looks like there's a heavenly host coming. Now the question is this. What heavenly host? Is it Satan and the demons giving account of themselves? Is it Satan and the good angels giving account of themselves? Is it Satan, the demons, and the good angels? It doesn't tell us. It says the sons of God came, but it does say Satan was among them. He came. He didn't come because he slipped into the line. I've heard this preached too. You know, Satan just slipped in with those good angels and he came because he wanted to accuse people. It, Satan was presenting himself before God. God said, you be here. And you can kind of see that in his responses to God's questions. But God set this up. We need to remember as we look at this whole occasion behind the scenes, this is God's story. God's in control of this. God's not reacting to any of this. God is being proactive in everything that's happening here. So we see what's going on there. And then we get verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And I look at this, and this is one of those places where you need to think about, what did this sound like? You've got to wonder what the voice of God sounds like when he's getting his angels to give an account. And he looks at Satan and said, where have you come from? Any of you raised teenagers? We're about to get a teenage response here. Because look at what Satan says. He says, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Did God know where Satan had come from specifically? He wasn't doing it for his benefit. He wanted Satan to give an account. Now, if your teenager has been out and doesn't want to tell you where they've been, and said, where have you been? What do they say? Out. It's like, I'm a parent. Duh, I knew you were out. Where were you? Here and there. Who were you with? Friends. What friends? Just some guys. You know, whatever it may be. Well, that's what you're getting from Satan here. Look at the answer. Satan, where have you been? I've been going to and fro and up and down. You think, you know, why does God let him get away with that? His days are numbered. If you missed the Revelation study, his days are very numbered. And God doesn't let him get away with it forever. But you look and you see, this, he, doesn't, he doesn't really answer God's questions. And the interesting thing is he does tell us a few things. Satan's got access to this world to go up and down and to and fro. And that's why Peter said, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a lion on the prowl, walks about seeking whom he may devour. When Satan says he was going up and down and to and fro, he was doing it as a lion looking whom he may devour. How do we know that? God's about to suggest some prey to him. And again, I look at that, and I think, this is why I never want to volunteer to be Job. 
And again, I look at that and say, boy, wouldn't it have been amazing to be Job? Because God looks at Satan in all of his attitude, in all of his sarcasm, in all that's going on there, and look at the challenge. And the Lord said to Satan, we forget sometimes as we look at this passage that attacking Job was not Satan's idea. It was God's. That doesn't fit with our theology sometimes. Because think about Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He hates evil. And if Satan is sitting there saying, you know, I'm going here, there, up and down. God says, you know, you're looking for somebody to go after. Have you thought about Job? It's like, God, don't put my name in that blank. But then look at what God says after it. And again, I don't know that Job ever knew this, but if there's anything that makes it all worthwhile in Job's mind one day, it ought to be the thing that we see next. Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Looking at you and based on your blamelessness, on your uprightness, on your fear of him, he looks and says to Satan, you want to go after somebody? Let me give you a name. Because there's nobody like them. And that's what he does with Job. He says there's nobody like him. And then that description that we got in chapter 1 of Job, God repeats it. That description came from God. God looked, the the God who knows the depths of our hearts, looked at Job and said, that man's blameless. That man's upright. That man fears me. From the bottom of his heart, he fears me. That man does everything he can to steer clear of evil. What a testimony. And again, it's not our place any more than Job's, but I have to ask myself, so why six Satan on him? God's about to glorify himself in Job's life. And Job belongs to God to do whatever he wants with. And that's easy to say of Job, but if we're Christians today, do you realize we belong to God in the same way to do whatever he wants with, whether we feel good about it or not? We're about to see what happens to Job, and it's devastating. But here is God. He looks and says, if you consider Job, and then you get the accusation of Satan. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Can you hear the sarcasm and the slander in that? Satan is going after not Job at this point. Who's he going after? God, no wonder you gave me Job's name. Why? You put a hedge around this guy. And everything he does, he's got the golden touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's got possessions. He's got family. He's got prestige. He's got it all. And you're protecting him. Of course he's going to do that. And what's Satan's accusation? Job only serves you for what he can Yet, be careful because sometimes we slide into that. Satan's not totally wrong with some of us. Think about the last 12 prayer requests you gave out. How many things were things that you felt God ought to do for you? Give me this. I need this. My kids need this. My wife needs this. I need this. And again, it's not wrong to take our requests before to God, but we need to realize the fact that we worship him not for what he gives us, but for who he is. And we're going to find that's exactly where Job's living by the end of this. And so Satan says, you know, he only worships you because you're taking care of him. But verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And so God's permission in verse 12. Again, realize Satan doesn't ask for this. What does Satan say? If you reach out your hand and you touch what he has and you take some of it away, he'll curse you. And God says, here, I'll do you one better. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I said, You think that's what Job's doing? Let me tell you. You said, I have him in my hands and I protected him here. 
All that he has is in your hand, except the man himself. Don't touch him. But anything else is fair game. And so Satan, and, and this is the understatement of the book, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine the enthusiasm Satan had when he went out from the presence of the Lord? He was going to prove God wrong. Can you prove God wrong? If you can prove God wrong, he's not God. And Satan's headed out there, and that's his whole mindset here. And so we get this devastation, and quickly we're going to finish up with this end of this chapter. But beginning at verse 13, it says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Catch this next part. While he was yet speaking... There was another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In one day, as we look at Scripture in a matter of moments, Job's whole world crumbles around him. He's devastated. You look at what happened here. A Sabian raid comes, and all of his donkeys, and all of his sheep, or all of the donkeys, and all of the plowing oxen are taken. A raid. They're gone. You look at that. You know, that that was quite a few donkeys and a thousand oxen. Gone. Like that. And that guy's not even done speaking before he tells him, you know, the servants were killed as well except for me. And then another one comes in in verse 16 and says, And the fire of God fell from heaven. Was that the fire of God? That's what Job wanted. But what did God say? I put him in your hands. Satan did that. The messenger didn't know that. He wasn't privy to that. When he saw the power of that fire come down, and the, the, when you look here, the fire was what, ate up all those sheep. 7,000 sheep. Gone. And the servants killed, burned alive. And one guy gets back. And on the heels of that, there's the Chaldean raid. And it's very likely that the reason that Job's got all these camels, he probably was taking care of trade with the camels. Why else do you need 3,000 camels? And suddenly his livelihood is gone. They came and they took them all. And you say, that's terrible. He's gone from rich to poor in a matter of seconds. But I'll tell you what, if the message had stopped there, I think Job would have been a whole lot happier. Because what happens with the last person that comes in? While he was yet speaking, another came in and said, your sons and your daughters, now think about Job when he just hears that much. His wealth is gone, one after another, and now one more servant comes running in and says, your sons and your daughters, can you imagine the heart of Job sinking? I know some of you have lost children. Job would have traded every camel, every sheep, every piece of his wealth to have those kids back. But he comes in and he says, the wind blew and the four corners of the house were blown out while they were all together and partying and and feasting together. And they're dead, every one of them. Job lost ten children like that. Can you imagine the grief? I remember as a kid, as a young adult, I used to go visit my grandfather. He was almost 90 years of age. 
I'd visit him uh, every week on Thursdays. So we'd get together, and I'll never remember the day that we, we didn't talk often about emotions or what was going on. I think it was one of my aunts or uncle's birthdays. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm almost 90. I've outlived every one of my kids. No one should outlive their kids. I remember the grief in his eyes. I remember the sadness in his voice. Now think about Job. Ten children who he had prayed for, that they would be right with God. And they're gone in a moment's notice. And you look at all, it, it's almost reminiscent. You remember the story of Horatio Spafford who lost his family crossing the ocean, who wrote, it is well with my soul. You look at Job now and you say, what are you going to do, Job? Here's Satan's attack. Here's his question to you. Are you really that committed to God? Look at what happens as Job stands firm in the last few verses. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job's response is more incredible than what just happened to him. Where would you be? He ought to be grieving. He not only lost it all, but he lost his family. He lost 10 kids. And you see Job, and he tears his robe, and he shaves his head, and he falls on the ground. And these were all natural reactions to grief in his day. A lot of times they would add sackcloth and ashes to that. But then they would usually mourn and lament and wail. And what does Job do? He says that he worshiped God. Because his integrity was real. Will your faith carry you through when the trials of life hit you? Because they will. If they haven't already, they will. Family members will pass. Health issues will spring up out of nowhere. Kids, some of your children will be lost. Not lost forever, hopefully, if they know the Lord, but they may pass before you do. How are you going to handle all those things? Are you going to look at God and say, why me? If anybody could have looked at God and said, why me? It ought to be Job because there was nobody like him on all the earth. His integrity was intact. He loved God. He loved God for his family's sake as well. And God, as far as Job could tell, God took it all. And so as Job looks at it, and what he says here is actually Hebrew poetry. And that's why you kind of get it in the picture. You get, naked I came out of my mother's womb. In the picture that I came out with nothing. How many of you brought something with you? You have a credit card tucked under your arm? You know, we came with nothing. And Job looks and he says, not only did I come with nothing, but naked I shall return. I'm going to die. I'm going to take nothing with me. One commentator said, shrouds have no pockets. You take nothing with you when you go. And Job looked at God at the time of his greatest devastation in life. His greatest grief, he'd lost everything, including his family, his kids, everything that he'd had. And Job's response is to worship God and acknowledge that God's sovereign in all of it. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. And look, the Lord gave. Don't we love it when God gives? Let me tell you about the grace of God, and we can again and again, God graciously gives. How many of you love it when God takes away? It's not supposed to work that way. If I serve God, he's supposed to constantly give and never take. Is that what scripture says? Be careful, because even some of Job's friends are going to try and tell him that. And Job looks and says, no, you know what? God graciously gave me everything I had. And God graciously took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a faith that stands the test.
Where's your faith? If God were to take it all away from you, if God were to take some of it away from you, your health, your wealth, your family, how would you respond? If we walk into it like Job, blameless, upright, and fearing God with our whole hearts, our explanation and our reaction ought to be, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Just as blessed when he takes it away as when he gave. Because he's still sovereign. He's still good. He still cares. And he still has a plan. And all of that's behind what Job said. And that's why we get to the end of this passage. And it says, and all of these things what? Look at that end. And all these things, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job looked and said, I trust God for who he is regardless of my circumstances, because it's about my relationship and not my possessions. Can you say the same? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this look into the life of Job, and this is only the beginning. It's amazing the things that are going to happen in this man's life, and as they're happening, he has no idea that God is in the midst of glorifying himself in the eyes of his greatest adversary to show what it means to fear God and hate evil. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to learn from this book. Lord, help us to persevere through this book. There are some difficult sections in here as we read through it. It's easy to get lost in in truths that we need to know. So God, I pray that you'd help us to persevere through this book. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to learn the lessons of this book and that the testimony of the life of Job will be used by the Spirit of God to change our lives to be more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray.